one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast. Today we look at business cycles, the ups and downs of the economy. It's something that happens, but what are the causes? Is it an intrinsic part of the functioning of an economy, in which case, why can't we stop it happening? Or is it driven by external factors that we don't have any control about, like the weather, for example? Today we look at how neoclassical economists might have got the idea of business cycles wrong and see if there is actually a way to stop them happening or at least make those peaks and troughs a little less severe. That's this time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So are business cycles inevitable? They used to be of course, many years ago, depending on agriculture, because they were driven by the weather. If the crops failed, the economy stalled. That's pretty simple. Some argue that even in uh, developed economies, agriculture is still an influence. But many suggest that the business cycle is completely independent of such external influences. It is a beast unto itself. So, Steve, I guess that obviously depends on the on the country that you're in. Those that have a, a high share of employment in agriculture may see bigger variations in uh, overall output, but does it spread to the broader economy beyond agriculture, or is it just agriculture that suffers? Do you think? Well, no, everybody suffers. And this, this is this is one of the key defining features between a neoclassical vision of the uh, economy and a realistic one. Mm. And the neoclassical one is pretty much says, well, you've got to look for look, you've got to look for look for exogenous shocks that are going to cause. Uh, volatility. Otherwise, we'd be sitting in a nice, comfortable place called equilibrium. Ever been to equilibrium? No, but you've, you've, oh, it's, it's, you you speak so badly about the place. I don't feel the need to go. Oh yeah, but it's such a peaceful <laughs> town. I mean, nobody even has a pulse, let alone let alone anybody <laughs> even dying. Uh, but the, the equilibrium, which is the location of the capitalist economy, would begin except for exogenous shocks, uh, is in the conventional view disturbed by exogenous shocks. And of course, what are exogenous shocks? Well, they're things that come from outside the economy, and uh, of course, solar flares. Uh, uh, you know that sort of thing. Variability mm. in the climate, which of course the economic has no impact upon the climate. Let's get that clarified straight away. Uh, and and therefore, it's all these exogenous shocks. So you're nation. saying under neoclassic theory, yeah. business cycles wouldn't exist if we didn't have these shocks. Exactly, and right. that's the, yeah, and that, that, that's what's one of the. What I was actually thoroughly delighted to see some of the garbage coming out of mainstream economists leading up to the financial crisis, because they had no bloody idea it was approaching, and they were falling to belief that actually got to this little town called Equi. Librium, and since they're now the Lord Mayors of Equilibrium, uh, they could guarantee that we would never have another a downturn. There would never be a crisis. And uh, my favourite statement of that came from uh, Lucas when he became, uh, I've forgotten his first, Bob Lucas, when he became uh, president of the American Economic Association, his valedictory speech, which is recorded in the American Economic Review and is freely available for those who would like to have a good laugh, uh, said that uh, macroeconomics developed in the 1940s, now that alone is bullshit, it started in the 1930s, uh, uh, and if you look at Marx, it started in the 1870s, uh, but macroeconomics was invented in the 1940s as a way of uh, working out a way to manage the economy to avoid the terrible events 
of the Great Depression. Uh, he said, my, my main uh, the, uh, point today is that we have succeeded in that task. Mm. Uh, the, the task of, re- of, of eliminating uh, serious economic crises, and which he really meant recessions, period, uh, has been eliminated uh, for many years. And now it's a case of uh, optim- optimising macroeconomic theory. We don't need to worry about the business cycle anymore. Well, when did he say that? 2007, yes. He didn't He didn't say not worry about the business cycle specifically because that would be admitting there's a cycle. Right. And that's really hard. You know, please, you know, we, is- we, there are some words we don't allow you to use in equilibrium and cycle is one of them. Right. And yet, isn't a cycle all part of equilibrium? I mean, it has its ups and downs, but generally, I mean, it, it all becomes a question of scale, doesn't it? Well, so, no, I mean, it's, and isn't it, isn't it sort of like basic economic theory that neoclassics uh, would would agree with that you know once you, you you're going to get to a stage where we overconsume and so there is an adaption to that overconsumption so we see a, a fall away in demand so that's what sees a downturn happening I'm you, you'd probably agree with that cycle as well I'm just wondering where the neoclassical economists would say well yes that's what happens but on a, on a small scale and it keeps on happening and that's how we have equilibrium nope they don't. All right, <laughs> their, okay. Their, their mission of the economy, model of the economy, is simply a system which is like, it's like a rocking horse. And this is actually the analogy used by, by uh, Ragnar Frisch uh, back in 1933, I think it was, when he established the Journal of Econometrics. And he, he said there are two approaches to looking at how business cycles occur. One is that those cycles are caused by endogenous forces. The forces that lead to growth also give you cyclical behavior. And that is literally also a quote, by the way, from Roy Harrod, somebody else I'll talk about in a bit of detail today. Um, but Ragnar Frisch said the other analogy is that it's like a rocking horse. If you leave a rocking horse uh, undisturbed, it'll sit in equilibrium. Uh, if you hit it with a hammer, and he literally, I think he did say actually a hammer, hit it with a hammer, it will then trace out a very, it will rock backwards and forwards, but trace out a very different uh, cycle to the actual hammer itself. So you hit it with a hammer because it's on curved legs, then first of all, there's a sudden jolt. And then it goes forward, then it goes back and forward and back, and finally it lands back in that lovely place called equilibrium. Mm. So that's that's the analogy they have. So you have to have exogenous shocks, and if it, you don't, if not shocks coming from outside the economy, you would not have cycles. That is right. their vision. But and yet, you know, I started talking about agriculture, and obviously, you know, in certain parts of the world, the economy is entirely dependent on agriculture because that's all they've got, and that's the way we all were at one stage. And in, the, in those times, of course, the economy was entirely dependent on those exogenous stocks. It, it shocks. No, it no, no. It, it's all been always been wrong. <laughs> oh, really? But I mean, sure, but, wrong but we know the weather changes from year to year. You get good years oh, yeah. and bad years. It, it, the, the weather is the ultimate source of agriculture. Is the initial absorber of those exogenous shocks because the, yes, the climate does change. Yes, there are weather patterns that vary from year to year. Uh, and and you know, and then they get the other extreme. You know, there are uh, the earthquakes and cyclone you know other 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 things which you can't blame on economists right uh, and they no, do impact some, they, and they, tried to, some bloody twitter asshole on twitter uh no, there's no assholes on twitter no well, i'm sorry about that I'm, okay. <laughs> so um, they're all beautiful people he, he, he hit me in a conversation about um about climate change and then said so is this due to climate change i hadn't realized the bastard had linked to a photograph of the volcano going off in uh, in new zealand two or three days ago 
Mm. And I had to delete that tweet because he bloody he tricked me with the first one. But yeah, there are, there, there are things which come from outside the economy that affect the economy that cause shocks, which mainly come through agriculture because that's right. most exposed to the climate. But aside uh, from that, the economy is going through these cycles because of the way the economy operates. And that's the part they leave out. Right. Okay, that, and you think that's always been the case, even even in a yeah. pure agricultural economy? Yeah, absolutely, because this is what and this is when I come back to Roy Harrod, because Harrod, uh, would, when Ragnar Frisch came up with this idea about the rocking horse analogy for business cycles. So rocking horse, which is the economy, uh, exalting a shock, which is the hammer. Uh, it then rocks and the cycles then peter out, go back to equilibrium again. That was the vision that, they, that Ragnar Frisch. And that became the mainstream, not just of econometric, that's how econometricians actually work. They build a model and they have an error term. And the error term is what gives you the variability in the actual equation, which is otherwise uh, completely deterministic. Um, so that's that's what took over. And Harris said, no, the forces causing growth may also be the forces that cause cycles. Yeah. And that's saying, okay, and that's the part that I that I that's my tradition in economic modelling. So even when people, because sometimes people say, well, uh, oil prices are an endogenous shock. We had the oil crisis, but of course, yeah. you know that that oil prices don't go up uh, out of nature; they go up out of uh, the actions of mankind. And again, oil prices go up because demand is so high. Because of economic growth, and so you know they're leading themselves yeah. to a shock, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, this 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 comes back to the very important point of uh, there's there's two visions: exogenous shocks alone, uh, with the with the economic model being like a rocking horse, a lower return to rest after those shocks have stopped and after its reaction to the last one has died down, uh, or the economy is something which is inherently cyclical. And where the ten, ten forces for growth are also the forces that give you cycles, and that was Harrod's perspective. And that's uh, and and Harrod actually got that I might add from Richard Goodwin, who's the person whose work that I, I built my work on Richard Goodwin's work, uh, and this says the system is inherently cyclical. Mm. And again, Harrod put it: the forces giving growth also were the forces that cause cycles. And his part of his argument was too: if you try to eliminate the cycles, you may eliminate the forces for growth. So it's a very very big divide in economic theory, and unfortunately, the people who are wrong. Won the debate. So right as usual. So the so the the reason for this this cycle, and I guess it depends. It can be different things. Kind of can be it can be consumption, it can be employment, it can be uh, asset prices. But in each case, it's the same thing happening, isn't it? That really we just push too far to such a stage where there isn't any equilibrium uh, and mm -hmm. and we see uh, things turn on their heels. So for example, yeah. um, you know, low unemployment pushes uh, costs up. Uh, which pushes prices up, but perhaps not as much as people are prepared to lay, uh, pay. We get a, a margin squeeze. We get a, a downturn in growth. That would be one example, wouldn't it? And that is almost, mate, uh, put on your – I hope you have a big uh, bushy beard. You can. Well, that's almost Karl Marx's original theory, <laughs> which is the correct one, okay? Mm. Uh, because Marx was uh, – this, this is one of the fascinating things. Little insights can occur to intelligent people that don't get built on by their followers, and that was the case for Good Marx back in 1867 until Richard Goodwin came along in 1967, precisely a century later, and put it in mathematical form. And what Marx was arguing, he said that if you have a period – and I'll, I, I won't use Marx is lingo, obviously. He said, you, if you have a period where the economy uh, is booming, then wages will rise and the wages will cut back on profit. But because profit is cut back on, there'll be less investment. With less investment, the rate of economic activity slows down. 
Ultimately, that means unemployment rises, forcing workers to take wage cuts again. And after a while, the wage cuts will restore the profit share that even with a lower level of economic activity, restore the share of economic of, of, of uh, income that makes capitalists willing to invest again. And the economy will go back into a boom again and you will have cycles. And mm. that is exactly um, what we, we actually have underlying the economy. But that, that doesn't really require anything it's not what, apart from apart from changing the activity affecting the distribution of income. So, I mean, another way, it's similar, but I mean, this is why I say aren't the variations. Another way could be that there's just no, no people left to employ. You're not seeing wages going up. You just don't have the people for the uh, for the industry you've got and you, uh, you know, which your country is dependent on. You can't train them fast enough. So growth stalls, companies that, that had worked on continued growth start to default mm-hmm. on their on their loans or they've, they've got to make cutbacks. Mm-hmm. So their production falls. Companies shrink. Consumption slides. We go down the down the other side of the slide. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I when I tried to do my economics. What I tried to do was layer it in areas that mean that I can take an initial act, uh, factor and then add a, add a further one that is an embellishment and a further one and a further one and a further one and so on. The ultimate one is that one Mark identified of the changes in the level of economic activity affecting the distribution of income and thereby affecting the rate of economic growth. So mm. the you get this feedback cycle. On top of that, and this, this is where my main contribution has been, and this is channeling uh, Minsky and Fisher, who are, of course, other people who talk, spoke very much about serious cycles, not just not just big uh, abnormal booms and slumps, but a total breakdown, a serious depression where you get locked into. You put the monetary system on top of that, and then the monetary system. If you if your investments mean that you borrow more money uh, because you you wish to invest more than your retained earnings, then you get an increase in the level of debt, which means you now have income going not just to two social classes, which was Marx's vision back in 1867, but three, workers, capitalists, and bankers. Now, as the increasing amount going to bankers occurs, um, that is, that's something which you would think comes out of the profit share. But what is one of the, the deepest insights I've got into capitalism from my mathematical modelling of it is that, in fact, that increase in bankers' share comes at the expense not of the capitalists but of the workers. Yeah, not immediate. It happens over a series of burns. So, and so during a period of growth, the company says, "Oh, this is great. The economy is going gangbusters. Mm. Let's invest more and more, so we can mm. make the most out of it." So they get more loans from the mm. finance sector. They've got bigger payments back to the finance sector, which, which actually boosts up the level of economic activity again. Because rather than being restricted to investment, invest in retained earnings, you can invest invest retained earnings plus new debt plus credit, right. and that gives you a larger level. Of so your booms are more extreme when you add the financial sector inside. So you, right. you start off with a basic cycle of income distribution. You add in then when bankers are in there, that cycle gets more extreme. And the third factor, and this is a point that Minsky identified, is that over time, you can, the, the, there's a ratcheting up effect on the level of debt. So uh, in the boom, you, you, you borrow money. The amount of money you borrow uh, depends upon expectations of a future that doesn't eventuate. Yeah. So you borrow you you borrow more than bump in booms, and you can pay back in slumps, and then you get a ratcheting up effect, and then finally get the sort of Minsky in crisis. But- People who don't lose on that, of course, are the finance sector. So the companies that are borrowing lots all of a sudden go, oh my god, we uh, you know we, th- this demand is not going to be eventuated, uh, but we've still got to pay those loans off. And uh, so they start to slide on their on their production, and the economy starts to slide. Mm-hmm. They're still got to pay the finance sector. So unless they get to a stage where they can't afford to pay the finance sector, and then we're looking at financial collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, until you get to that stage, the finance sector still 
humming along quite nicely, isn't it? And this and this is the exercise, the point again past what we, you and I have spoken about. We've got Richard. Richard, I'm glad you're listening. Richard Vague. Uh, Richard on here as well because his most recent book, you know, I've praised quite a few times, uh, mm. A Brief History of Derm. He, had, he <laughs> was a banker. He yeah. was a banker, he, and he was a banker in Texas. And they, you know, and he, they, the, the banks he was part of were applying investment funds to oil companies. Well, <laughs> and you, everything you're talking about, this is all part of Richard's personal history, which I'd love, to, I'd love to detail for the benefit of other patrons here. Um, he said, in this environment, bankers are being rewarded for creating debt. The more you can pump out debt, the more you can get. You, you be the one who lends to that oil rig rather than the other firm the more you do it. And there's this euphoria that takes part of the banking sector. And this is also something Minsky spoke about as well, of course, but he called euphoric expectations occurring. Then you get bad loans being made on a grand scale. Mm. And then, of course, when the bad loans go bad, it isn't just the companies that borrow the money that go down, the banks can fail as well. Um, so this this so this so is an additional level that gives us that cyclicality. Banks make bad loans. There's, there's an inherent tendency because the rewards to bank bank executives and even minor staff these days does come from from extending loans um then there's a tendency to pop out more loans than the companies need at all times and that's another layer again of bad lending so how does this happen then it's almost like we've uh, we've got a a, the memory of a goldfish because these cycles keep on (laughs) happening and yet companies keep on pushing beyond Without, you know, knowing that at some point the economy is, go- is going to tumble because it, because everyone collectively is going to push too far and banks will keep on issuing those, um, you know, what could become toxic loans mm. because they've forgotten about the risk from what happened the last time things went bad. Well, it, and yeah. of course, they didn't go yeah. quite so bad for them. So maybe they can be excused for carrying on as though uh, they, they live in a bubble because perhaps they do. But for the uh, the corporate sector, I mean, it's a bit bizarre that we don't learn. Or maybe we have this time. No, we don't learn. That, that's then that again is partly uh, Minsky's idea of, you, of, of you, the cycles and expectation, which is a huge part of Minsky's theory. Neoclassical had this ridiculous concept of rational expectations, which actually, when you look at the definition of what they call rational, mm. uh, he, he said, "Here's a, here's this. Provide me a word." For this phrase, you explain the neoclassical definition of rational, and I think if you give an ordinary person, you know, blindfolded in a you know a, a TV game show, the word they choose is prophetic. Okay, what they call rational is actually cap- 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 capability for accurate prophecy. Yeah. Now that is garbage. It is. Of course, yeah, yeah, and uh, look, I think we'll talk about that next time because I want to talk about uh, the opportunity cost next time, just whether that, that such a thing exists, and, that, and a, lot of that, a lot of that, a lot of that does get down to that, doesn't it? But look, the reason why I'm asking about whether we learn or not, where, where are we now? Because since the '60s, we can see clear peaks in these uh, in these cycles. You know, four or six percent GDP in in developed nations troughs down to zero or below but since 2009 since the global financial crisis it's hung around the two to three percent mark and not really moved much beyond that or you know perhaps a bit below that but we're not really seeing a cycle right now if it it is it's taking a long time to limber up maybe that's a good thing i mean because people look at it and say well maybe this is the goldilocks economy we've got low unemployment we've got low interest rates we've got steady growth even if it is slow growth what's not to like about that so this side this side well yeah okay yeah. it's stagnation apart it's, from that it's, it's, it's stagnation <laughs> i mean it is it, it, and see if you look at the economic literature on this front they're trying to understand why is the economy relatively stagnated even when you take into account the lower level of population growth uh you find the rate of economic growth is below lower than what people would expect out of the previous records of technological change over time and 
uh, it is it is not that the cycle's been eliminated. We are it's why I call this we're in not a period of not of secular stagnation, but credit stagnation, because we let credit get to be far too big a part of aggregate demand, but it's always been a part of it. Now, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, you've gone from where credit in America was as high as 15% of GDP, where it peaks at no more than 7% of GDP and then starts falling again. And that is the situation Japan was in after its bubble economy burst back in 1990 of credit demand going from a massive positive contributor to a normally a negative contributor. And then in that up, because you have negative credit, you don't or low levels of credit, you don't get the level of both consumer demand or investment demand that you used to have. And so you have stagnation uh, as the aftermath to a crisis where you haven't eliminated the level of private debt. And that's that's the situation we're in right now. Is that a bad thing, though? I mean, if, if it say it wasn't stagnation, it was just slow growth. Isn't the, Couldn't we use the word realistic and just say that maybe, you know, expectations are more realistic now and people are being more risk adverse and all of those are good things because it stops that cycle from happening doesn't it no i think to me it's uh i mean i i i i would like to see us back in an industrial economy where you actually have a general innovation going on because we're going to desperately need it in a very short time go to see what uh the climate is what we're doing to the climate and we, when we when we finally we've got it, we're going to have far too many financial engineers, not enough real ones so that's uh that is one of my major con- major concerns mm. but uh to it, it, I mean, it also means. I mean, even even if we forget about manufacturing and we just think at other uh, other industries, because of course we are entering the digital age. You, you've got to have smart people, and I guess if we've not got enough money uh, and, uh, and investment, or the the ability for people to feel that they can make the loans to educate themselves, then we're not going to have an educated workforce, which means we're uh, you know we're we're not going to continue down this path for very long. Yeah, I, mean, it, it, I don't think this is a. I don't think this is Valhalla. Put it that way. So, and the cycles, the, the cycles have been overwhelmed to some extent by the scale of, of QE and the and the low interest rates as well. It's we've got a manipulated economy in that sense. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody. I'm not somebody who believes that the market sets interest rates after all. Uh, it's a very neoclassical view. But I am uh, certainly of the view that the 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 way that the Central banks have ended up manipulating the stock market, as giving us all the, a lot of this artificiality, and also driving. I don't see a financial crisis like two thousand and eight coming along, but I do see lots and lots of very dodgy lending occurring, courtesy of low interest rates and people searching for yield. Yeah, and we're going to get for not so much financial crisis, but financial fragility coming out of this. So it's. It's not a golden time. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the interesting thing right now, isn't it? In that, you know, the economy is not moving fast anywhere, and yet uh, uh, stocks generally in the United States, in particular, are skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And mm. that is entirely, in my opinion, entirely driven by QE and the corporate sector exploiting QE for the share buybacks, which helps drive up the share prices and helps out the bonuses their executives are getting. Uh, and and a chunk of it will also be, I mean, that's certainly part of it, but I mean, those buybacks presumably have all by and large happened now, and yet it continues to rise. It's, it's really got to be a case of people who've got some money to invest saying, well, interest rates are low, we can't put it in bonds. It's too risky an environment to, uh, um, to, you know, to be investing it directly into businesses. So let's just do it in, in the one area that seems to be moving, which is uh, the secondary market on shares. Yeah, and it en- ends up no longer being a productive economy that you're financing as a side effect to the credit credit bubble. Yeah. So yeah, but back to the, the the basic thing about the business cycle. It's inherent in a capitalist economy, and this is one of the things which is frustrating about working with people who have a neoclassical mindset. They think rest is the normal state of any of any dynamic system. No, it's not. The normal state of any dynamic system is cyclical behaviour. Yeah. That implies to each of our bodies. So I used to tell my students that if you were in equilibrium, you wouldn't only be dead. 
you'd be frozen to absolute zero because any temperature above that, your body will decay. So it, it is a vision of a, of a world at absolute zero. This equilibrium is a rather cold place and <laughs> the, the real world and living systems are hot and the hot places have cycles. Mm. All right. And they seem to be a global thing as well, don't they? So the synchronicity that we see, that's presumably just because we have so much bilateral trade. If my economy suffers, I demand demand less, so your economy goes down with me, basically, and particularly amongst yeah. the G7. So, I mean, I wonder, is this a disadvantage of global trade? If we didn't have as much global trade, would we all be having our own independence cycles? Relatively, yeah. I mean, if if, even if you go back far enough, you'll find that the cycles in the, in, in uh, Britain were part were, were in, would influence cycles in America. So uh, it, it does happen back in the 1700s. That same dynamic is still there, but not as strong. And if you did have completely autarkic situations, yes, you would have completely independent cycles. But because we're all linked to some extent through that trade, what you get is a degree of synchronicity coming out of it. And also, of course, synchronicity of expectations when we now share uh, you know, uh, the internet enables ideas to be spread and, and sentiments to be spread, then you get a degree of, uh, you know, oh, America's invented collateralized debt obligations, CDOs. That sounds like a good idea. Let's make them over here. So you get a, you know, <laughs> it's, it's called contagion. You, the virus spreads much faster when you have globalized economy. So is the concept changing, though, as we move from manufacturing to a more technology-based economy? Because obviously manufacturing is, uh, you know, is all about big sums of money. It requires big investment. There's a time lapse while you build machinery. You really do have to plan on what your expectations are for, for what the future is going to be. So you have to spend a lot more and, you know, the potential to lose a great deal because of that investment is much greater. Whereas in the digital space, you know, less investment, perhaps shorter time frames, more more ability to to adapt more quickly. So maybe you don't have to step quite so far ahead. <laughs> Sorry, what did you what did you bite for breakfast? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it don't, okay, tell me where I'm wrong. I mean, because yeah, because the, 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 I mean, the whole idea that they're going to be a post manufacturing society. Uh, I've, I've had this discussion many a time. We still need stuff. Yeah, we still. My point is, there is such a thing as a post manufacturing society. It's called hunting and gathering. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we are not going to ever have a world we don't consume physical things. Right. But the mix of it. I mean, I, mean, I take your yeah. point. I mean, I'm uh, I'm getting a, a, a new desk delivered today. It's not a digital desk. It's made but made by somebody it's made, in a factory. Made of wood, solid wood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, okay. and, yeah, so uh, and it comes with an Allen key. And I know I'm going to be using lots of swear words trying to put oh, it together later. Oh, you poor bastard. But, but the, um, and it doesn't, <laughs> come, there, doesn't come from Ikea, but lots of my stuff does. But I mean, but, but proportionally, though, I mean, you know, there's a, a man Manufacturing isn't, I mean, it was the be-all and end-all of the economy, obviously, at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Now, aside from the emerging finance sector, which obviously we think is a a bad thing, you know, the growing control that it has, there is this digital landscape, which is a big, taking on a bigger proportion of the economy. So So as that becomes more dominant, I'm not saying manufacturing disappears, I'm just saying its influence becomes less. Well, there's the partner factor there, but I, you and I, I don't know how far back your history goes in Australia, but do you remember the company called Imagineering? They name vaguely familiar, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I love the fact that you, you remember the came uh, Jamie Packer, of course. Yeah. Okay, okay. Jamie Packer ended up losing a large amount of money. I think it was an Archaeopteryx, wasn't it, at some point? Mm. Uh, but but uh, this this is an example. Imagineering is one of the first major distributors of computer software, and computer software is growing at eighty percent per annum at the time, something like that. I've been twenty percent per annum at least. Well, to actually expand and have the stock of you know physical 
uh, physical units to send out, uh, Imagineering is growing at 80% per year. And then the rate of growth of the computer industry slowed from, say, 20% to 15%. And Jody Rich, and I love that name, Jody Rich, R-I-C-H. Yeah. For a while. You know, when, <laughs> it was bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, we would be highly challenged anyway when Imagineering went down. So the, the volatility, the, 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 partly the growth rate of that area can actually add to some of the volatility as well because, mm. again, you've got to borrow Well, that's what, hap- that's what happened around 2000, wasn't it, when we basically had the dot-com bomb. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So they, far from us insulating, it actually gave us the second largest financial crisis uh, in the post-war period. So, um, you know, the, the, we're not going to get away from it. Uh, and and fundamentally, as I said, still, uh, we can't afford to, we can't live on bites. Yeah. Can uh, we soften the blow of the of these business cycles? Is there anything we can do through public policy, for example, to say, well, okay, we can see where, where this is heading. You know, can we, if we can't get rid of the cycles completely, can we, uh, can we lower the peaks? We can lower the peaks. I mean, what we've actually done well, is actually, actually lower the trough, hide the troughs more to the point. Yeah, well, we've got to lower both sides. I mean, partly, um, again, Minsky's vision was that uh, the government role should be to be like an air conditioning unit in a house. When the house gets hot, the air conditioning cools and vice versa. Uh, and do it as, in, in fair, as, as much in an automatic way as possible rather than being a policy-driven thing because policy will always be running on lagged information, so you right. might actually make the cycles worse. So what's the air conditioning unit? What kicks in then? Government spending. Yeah. And this, this is Minsky's explanation of why we hadn't had a huge financial crisis between 1945 and 1982 was the government was about, in, in terms of proportion of the economy, of the order of four times the size that it was before the Second Depression, the Great Depression and the Second World War. Um, so with that large level of government spending, when there was a downturn, because that would mean the government tax receipts would fall and spending would rise necessarily, the increased budget deficit would then stimulate the attenuate the ups and downs, but you would still have cycles, and uh, but you'd have you would have cycles that wouldn't lead to this long-term accumulation of private debt, which then leads to a financial crisis like so 2000. You'd have a trigger point then at which that that government spending kicks in. So what that would be yeah. when GDP falls below a certain level, or what? What's- well, what, 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 what I modelled when I did this back in my people don't realise in '95 paper that I wrote back in 1992. Uh, included a model of the government sector as well as added that as to a model of a private sector with uh, a private money creation added in a government sector that had counter-cyclical spending driven by the level of employment. Right. And when I put that model together, I got what I, if you have people ever see the Minsky, uh, the, sim, Im, the image we use for the Minsky software, that's that's the model, the, it's a three-dimensional model of uh, of the economy with government, Vertical is you know, is is debt level, debt to GDP, and the horizontal and into the screen are employment and wages share. And what you got was a continually cyclical system, but the cycle did not lead to a accumulation of private debt and a breakdown. So the government can be the attenuating, but it has to keep the line. So my, in my model, I had the government setting the line at say five percent unemployment. Anything above five percent, it took punch bowl away below five percent it added to the punch bowl right and what you got it had to be resolute now of course what happens and this is partly your thing about memory is that we over time we we are heavily influenced by the recent past and we then if we see a recent past where there's been a slump 
uh, we will behave differently if the recent past was a boom. And we forget. We do forget. Um, so this, what, maybe what, maybe central banks then should actually be telling the government how much money it's got to spend. Leave it yeah, for the government. To, yeah. Leave the government yeah. to determine how they're going to spend it. But um, yeah. but the the, the, the budget set by the by an independent central bank. If the central bank knew what it was doing, but they're staffed by yeah. neoclassical economists, they yeah. haven't got a fucking clue. So we have no <laughs> problem. So uh, but, but, but yeah. But none of this is what you're describing is not is not what's happening right now. Of course, because no, we've got no. and that's I guess that's because of the debt because we because we have got uh, very very low unemployment. We've also got very low wages growth. So you wouldn't be kicking in with government spending now, and yet the economy isn't growing. But we, you and I, and you know, a small number of people yeah. realize that that's because people are carrying so much debt. And that's what's happening in Australia now, isn't it? We see people are people are worried about the size of their mortgage. So even though they've had this uh, this cutback in in taxes, um, the government isn't prepared to push any money into the economy. Uh, people supposedly are well off because they've got low interest rates. They've got jobs, but mm. they're not spending because they know they've got this this huge debt hanging over yeah, them. So yeah. they're trying to pay it off. And that's where the stagnation comes from because yeah. the turnover of existing money slows down as well in reaction to that. So uh, all those factors together. But the, the basic thing is the business cycles are an inherent part of a dynamic economy. And we have to accept that as a basis and then work from it rather than starting from a perspective that said if it wasn't for exogenous shocks, there'd be no cycles. Yeah. And that's one reason why we've made things worse because those people who believe that are the ones who run central banks and economic policy. So in a nutshell, uh, they're a bit like my children, aren't they really? You know, we love, you know, when, when they're on the up, uh, that's all good and we love them. But uh, like my children, they just don't know when to stop. You know, they'll just uh, <laughs> and t- until you reach breaking point and then it's just a downward spiral and then you have to make up to them and then it's all on the up again. Indeed. Uh, That's a pretty good summary of the economy. <laughs> and my family. Uh, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll uh, love them to death, of course. We'll, uh, we'll talk again next week. Opportunity cost, another one of your favourites. Uh, let's yeah. debunk that next time. See you soon. Okay. Okay. And that is going to be the last one before Christmas, by the way. Uh, look, this has been a free one. We've made normally you have to be a subscriber to hear these podcasts in full. Occasionally we allow you to hear one in full just to tempt you in uh, because we do one of these every week. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at debunkingeconomics.com or become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen to get access to, uh, well, a couple of hundred half hour chats between me and Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you again next week. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.